We are proud to be working with Aviate watches who create quality aviation timepieces that honour classic aircraft of the past and the crews that flew them. One of my personal favourites in their collection is the Hawker Harrier 2, the Matador, which comes in a variety of colours. As you can see, the detail is amazing, from the chamfered edge bezel, the crown guard, and the piston-like pushes, and of course, that amazing case back. To pick up yours or any others in their collection, make sure you head to their website at avi8.com, which is spelt avi-8.com. Thank you and enjoy. So, Paul, when did you first become interested in aviation? Uh, I was always in, interested in aviation. I was very lucky. My, my father was in the fleet air arm, and so helicopters and flying suits, etc., were always around the, the family home. Uh, and because we lived quite close to Yeovilton, and my one of my best friends at school's father was a test pilot, I, I guess um, there, there was no really earliest day. It was uh, I was I was straight into it really. So from from a very small age. So why did you want to join the Navy rather than the RAF? Uh, so, <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's a great question. The, the, primarily, uh, it was because of, again, my, my father's connection. There's always been a bit of inter-service rivalry, hasn't there? So if your father is one of these people who fancies having a pop at the Royal Air Force occasionally, then that colours your judgement. But I, I guess the most significant part of uh, my decision process was actually being at Yeovilton when the Jets left for corporate. So um, I had this... Uh, some would say sort of fantasy of flying the Sea Harrier and uh, and you know that mellowed over years to well you know I'd really like to be part of the jungly force maybe or, or fly the Lynx or hopefully fly the Sea Harrier but it was very specific so uh, I, I, was, I was very lucky that I had that um, injection of impetus at an early age if that makes sense. Yeah so you always wanted one of the Sea Harrier that was like ingrained in you was it? Uh, absolutely yes. Yeah. <laughs> so can you talk us through some of your flying training on the Harrier? Uh, so flying training on the Harrier specifically, the, the flying training world was, I think the best way of describing it is delivered for defence by Royal Air Force. Uh, and at the end of RAF Valley, if you made the single seat grade as a Royal Navy pilot, then you went to 899 Naval Air Squadron, right. which is when the fun started. And, uh, and that starts with essentially a lot of ground school, even a trip to the museum to, to be told this is how V-Star oh, really? started. That's yeah, day one uh, in, included a, a trip to the museum. Uh, and then the first sortie would even involve a, a, an extended taxi around the airfield just to get the hang of the nozzles, etc. And then, then off you went. And it was, it was a pretty, it was a damn steep learning curve actually. I think the third trip was you were completely on your own. And uh, if you can imagine all the, the systems, etc., and the possible warnings, uh, I have a very clear memory of my first Sea Harrier trip, which, which went very badly, by the way, on, on my own. But I have a, have a very clear memory of looking at the warning lights during the uh, medium level exercises I had to go and do on my own. Going, you know, I'm not entirely sure what all of those mean. If, if I get a red or an amber caution, I, I really hope it's one of the ones I understand. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and yes, and then 899 was, a, was an elongated course, so, but it went from having never seen a Harrier to being fit to go to the, the Sea Harrier front line. So, you know, hence was quite intense. So what was the Sea Harrier actually designed for originally? Uh, well, fleet defence, really. I, I, I guess it was a remarkable bit of engineering and it filled a, a significant gap after we lost the conventional carrier capability mm -hmm. in the UK. It was a very simple aeroplane. Realistically, it was a... Um, sidewinder and gun carriage 
vehicle that happened to have nozzles and that allowed it to operate from the Invincible class carriers, which I think were called through deck cruisers at the time, probably some sort of political subterfuge going on. Yeah. But, uh, but, but it was still an FRS Mark I, so it was a fighter reconnaissance strike aircraft and, and you'll recall from the Falklands campaign that all of those roles were things that the units and, and air crew and maintainers could, could do. Was there an air, an air to ground capability with the aircraft? Because I, I, I spoke to maybe you know Andrew Neofito, and he said like it was also uh, designed for air to ground, and I was surprised at that because I didn't know that. Yeah, indeed. So that, it was a Harrier One, so it had uh, limited pylons as compared to a Harrier Two. But yes, we could take a five hundred and forty pound uh, weapon or a one thousand pound weapon on. Uh, one of five, six, uh, seven stations, uh, if you took the tanks off. Uh, so you're always trading air-to-air -air stores for air-to-surface stores. But yes, we, we could drop uh, either retarded or free-fall 540s or 1,000-pound weapons. And actually, as the aircraft developed into the FA-2, one of the ways we tightened up the um, air-to-surface modes was to use the Blue Vixen. So as you, as you tipped into a dive, for example, if you brought up the second or third bombing mode, then that would actually have the radar staring at the ground, right. which gave you a very, very tight um, air-to-surface delivery mode for an unguided weapon. And we have to talk about this, your first time hollering the jet, that must have been quite a scary experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was actually. It's, uh, I, I think the, the best way of describing it is yeah, you're never allowed to say you're scared, but you're allowed to say you were in a scary situation, right? right. So yeah, and, and we used to, uh, my, my friend and I, uh, Jim, who was on the course, uh, I think it was probably him rather than me that coined the phrase disco leg, of there comes a point in every sortie where you've checked everything and it's time to go. Mm -hmm. And there comes a point, therefore, that uh, you are there on the pad at Yeovilton, you've checked absolutely everything and the last thing you have to do is move the nozzles to the hover stop and slam to full power. And both of us noticed at about that point that our right legs were shaking and, um, and it was time to go. But uh, it's not you can't exactly taxi back in and say, no, I don't fancy it. Although I do recall, I think, a student pilot doing that when right. I was uh, a more, not, not a senior pilot, that's a position, but I think I was on my first tour and hearing from the um, 899 that someone had refused to go, and you know, that was that was either the end of them or the beginning of the end of them or whatever. Mm -hmm. What about on the boat, though? That must have been a completely different experience. The, 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 <laughs> yes, the, the boat is absolutely fabulous, and uh, it concentrates the mind. It, it's not something that most humans get to do, and it's certainly not yeah. something that most humans get to do every day. And I, I think the way I described it at the time was, yeah, I, I used to do play a bit of rugby, do mountain earring type things, and occasionally you'd you'd climb a big mountain or whatever, and you say, oh, I don't know what all the fuss was about. That was that was, that was actually quite straightforward. When you yeah. land on an aircraft carrier, particularly for the first time, you go, oh my goodness, that that was everything it was supposed to be and more. That was uh, fabulous and lunacy all at the same time, and. Uh, and, I, and I've, I've said it before, but um, ships just don't seem to get bigger as you try to <laughs> land on them. They, they, you see, you see yeah. this grey speck on the horizon, and then you get into a pattern above a grey speck, and eventually you're landing on a grey speck. It's, uh, it's, uh, it really is. It's great fun uh, when you get used to it. Uh, I think somewhere in my my logbook, I've got an asterisk. I think probably next to my. 70th or 71st deck landing and I put wow. that there because that was the first one I relaxed for and really enjoyed mm -hmm. uh, Up till then it was quite a fraught experience for me And is this a myth or not like Harriet guys are supposed to be the best pilots. Is that a myth? <laughs> uh, I, I think 
it has its basis in truth in that at various standards of grading aircrew, then the top of the classes were straight to go fixed wing to, to start with at, at elementary, and then going through Valley for the Royal Air Force guys, the single-seaters would, would go to either the Jaguar or the Harrier. Yep. Um, and I think there's an element of truth in the, the fact that both of those aeroplanes had a largely similar attack role. I know the, the Jaguar had a specific recce squadron as well, but the Harrier brought that extra challenge of VSTOL, yep. so, it, so it suited the person that could deal with that as well. So, so po possibly, so a, a, a little bit of fact in there, but uh, at the end of the day, we're all still military air crew, all still make mistakes. It's, it's just the, the single seat world and the mistakes are all your own, really. So there's no ego there? I, it would be massively incorrect to state that the single seat world does not have massive egos in it. However, all the people that you love and cherish and desperately wanted to be like were the guys with no ego whatsoever. Yeah. That were the, 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 the humble guys. And the people who had a bit of an ego or a flinty demeanor, shall we call it, they were the sort of people that, you know, for example, in a mass brief in front of other aircrew from other units, you'd sort of be shrinking into your chair going, oh, I really wish he wasn't up the front talking on our behalf. <laughs> but <laughs> but I, I'd go as far as to say, Mike, that the, if, if you were to ask me what is the most surprising thing about single seat and Harry pilots, sea Harry pilots, I, I would say is how normal we all are. Yeah. It, that, that, you know, the, the, I'll just run down, but uh, my first unit, everyone was just an average family person. They went home to their children, went to parents' evenings, etc. It was all, all just normal. It was only yeah. during the day that you um, strap a Harrier to your backside and off you, off you went type thing. Yeah, because I think like I went into I've interviewed a few Harrier guys now, you know, GR three right up to the GNI and the Shah. Uh, but I was a bit scared coming into it because I was like, oh, everyone says they're quite e egotistical. But I think that was just from the Av geeks. But when, when you get to meet them, you're like normal blokes. It's it's a battle that we will never win because 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 <laughs> yeah. you, you know it's, it wouldn't exactly be a. Uh, a great use of our time to be going around trying to pretend to people we were all absolutely normal <laughs> and whenever um, for example you, you get that um, you, you hear it maybe on the internet maybe in a book maybe in a, uh, another interview or just someone making a quip in the bar about oh arrogant harrier pilot or, or whatever yeah. and what, what can you do you, you can't exactly go across and go uh, I'm absolutely normal and I'm going to prove it to you <laughs> I'm really normal <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm massively normal <laughs> You wouldn't believe how normal I am. Prove that to you. Oh, all my mates are normal. Uh, so, so you just sort of roll your eyes and move on. So I, I don't, and I, I genuinely don't know where that came from. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I don't. I have a feeling it probably wasn't something that grew out from the Harrier yes. Force. I think it was something that grew in from other forces, shall we say? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So let's talk about the cockpit on the Charles. What was it like, and was it was it comfortable? I, I loved it. Um, I'm not the smallest pilot, as uh, in fact John Parker brought up in his interview. I yes. am that Paul that he mentioned was the yeah. local player that only just fitted in, which I thought was a bit rich from Parker, to be honest. But um, I, it, for whatever reason, it suited me um, ergonomically. I, yeah. I fitted in, and actually, the, the, the great thing about the Sea Harrier was was how at hand everything was. It was one of the earlier I'd say ho jets that got to grips with HOTAS okay. so, the, so there was a, a fair amount that was 
off the stick. So for example, in, in other uh, models, you wouldn't have to take your hands off the throttle or stick at all to operate some of the controls. But in the Sea Harrier, they had done a, a, a damn good job. Yeah. Uh, other than one particular switch that used to annoy me, because we had on the, um, on the top of the stick was the accept button, which was like an, are you sure? So you would select a, it was a very naval jet, Mike. It was a bit right. like, you can imagine someone on the bridge of a warship going, standby to execute. Yeah. Are you sure? Execute. Uh, and, and, and the accept button was the aviation version of that. It was like, I'd like super scan, please. Accept. Um, and, uh, but, but other than that, uh, uh, just a, a really useful cockpit. Everything was uh, available to you. I, there were things like the water jettison was somewhere mm. on one of the trays that required yeah. you to have two elbow joints to get to. But you would only need that once in a blue moon. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, when when I was in Oman once, someone managed to jettison their water by accident, switching the flares off. And I just thought, how could you possibly have done that? It, it requires you to break your arm, pretty much, uh, to do it. But the if the brains of the uh, the FA2 was the Blue Vixen, the, the screen was right there. And it was very intuitive, uh, give or take, changing scan volumes for the radar. You didn't have to take your hands off the throttle and mm-hmm. stick. So it was, it was a great cockpit. And... and Great visibility. I mean, one of the big mysteries for me about how the Harrier developed was when people started making a song and dance about the raised cockpit in the FRS-1 and the FA-2 as compared to the GR-1 and GR-3. Okay. And you sort of look at it and go, why, why is that a thing? Why yeah. wasn't it like that to start with? What, what, what's good about yeah. being hunched in the front of an aeroplane? So, yeah, really, for, a, for an aircraft of its time, and bearing in mind it was a, an improved FRS-1, which first flew the production variants in, what, 78? then yeah. um, they've done a great job. Absolutely. Obviously, you mentioned uh, some of the strengths there, but can you maybe go into a bit more detail about the strengths and weaknesses of the Shah? The, the, the Sea Harrier in the FA2 guys was fabulous because it carried the AMRAM, and that was very well integrated by the with the Blue Vixen. Yeah. But the downside was you could only carry four. And if you, if you carried four, you had no cannon and no sidewinder. So the most a general purpose air-to-air role would probably, you could carry four sidewinders on twin racks outboard and two AMRAM on your belly, mm-hmm. but then you might, you would have significant handling issues with the aeroplane. The aeroplane really didn't like having twin oh, sidewinders. Really? Yeah, you could uh, oh, wow. you could even get it to tuck. I can't remember exactly what the G-limit was, but uh, there was a restrictive G-limit if the if you had two sidewinders on the outboard pylons, oh, because wow. if, yeah. if, if you pulled the high, a yeah. certain G, the, 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 the jet would tumble. That, I mean, that, that was a Harrierism. Was, uh, eventually, you could always get a jet to, to tumble, pretty much, or, or uh, depart from controlled flight. So, so the Sea Harrier, great radar, great weapon, very few weapons, small wing, which meant that actually uh, it was quite hard to use in combat. You, you had the, the VIF to give you maybe a little bit more, but to be honest... I didn't I, use that much because I've heard yeah, yeah. pilots say it, but like I've heard that pilots say, like, nah, we didn't really use it. I, I, I would always describe VIF as a cycle in that VIF could get you some advantage and it could bring about total disaster in in equal measure. <laughs> and what would invariably happen is you'd be in a fight. Uh, you know, a good example of just a smidge of VIF would be, um, for example, once in the in the Harrier, I was two v one against a typhoon, and wow. I can remember seeing this beautiful typhoon silhouetted up in the um, in the dark blue stuff, and just seeing my airspeed running away as I uh, downwards in the in the wrong sense. And um, and I, I can remember thinking, you know what, if I could just raise the nose that 
10, 15, 20 more degrees, yeah. then, I'll, then I'll be able to get a shot off here. And sure enough, and I, I, and I hadn't realized quite how slow I was at the time, but by reefing the nozzles in, the nose sits perfectly over the typhoon and you, t you take a shot. And, that, and that's, that's no, no detract, the, the, two, the typhoon was there as a training aid. Yeah. We were 2v1, it, it's just a use of VIF. But then I departed the aeroplane because the because by now there's genuinely no speed whatsoever on the clock. Yeah. The, the jet is simply free falling with ballistic, as we mm -hmm. would term it. But um, so those experiences would give you that little bit of confidence that VIF would work in combat, and so you might get a bit more confident, and then you would try maybe some of the more aggressive manoeuvres, like getting the nozzles really far forward to fly someone out in front of you or whatever, mm -hmm. and that might work for you. And then you would do pretty much exactly the same, any of those maneuvers, and you would end up tumbling through the sky, um, trying to recover the aeroplane. Whoever you were fighting against would get the easiest shot in the world because right. you're genuinely just spiraling away. And that would put you off using it for a week, a month, two months. And then something like the typhoon thing would happen again. You'd go, oh, I'm going to give it a good go. So, so that, that's how I found VIF. It was very, very useful in uh, some circumstances i think some people were scared of it and some people overused yeah. it as with all things in aviation it, it was a useful trick to have up your sleeve if you used it correctly and at the right time but but like i said uh, <laughs> it could, could quite happily lead to yeah. disaster as much as it would advantage yeah so on the subject like let's talk about the the char like how did it fare in dsct against you know like f-15s f-16s even the tornado f3 um well DACT itself, bearing in mind you would always usually start further out, so you would start with, with an intercept. So the, the joy of the Blue Vixen was that it was uh, what was called interleave multi-pulse um, repetition frequency. So would use the right pulse repetition frequency, PRF, mm -hmm. depending on whether it was looking up, level or down. And, and one of the benefits that gave you is it gave you a very high fidelity radar track when it got the radar track, right. and that's what the AMRAM needed. So, because the, the way an AMRAM uh, or any air-to-air -air missile works is if you can tell it with certainty exactly where the enemy is, mm -hmm. it will give you a better chance of, of getting there yeah. and, and it will reflect that in your, your symbology. So at that stage of the intercept, I think that against most players, we usually used to surprise them because actually we had quite low power on the ra radar uh, and that allowed us to take AIM-120 shots when maybe they, they weren't used to defending against shots of that nature. because being one of the first AMRAM shooters, we were up against people that yeah. were used to FOX-1 shooters yeah. that, that needed an illumination to shoot, um, and we didn't need to do that. In close, we really struggled against um, the F-Jets, so the 15s, 16s, uh, 18s, that all had their strengths, different strengths, obviously. The F-15 had a lot of power, F-16 could take a lot of, uh, was incredibly um, good at turning, F-18 very good at flying slow. Mm -hmm. um, so we had to use some things to our advantage. Small size, for example, we're very, very small compared to an F-15 or an F-14. I, I, I think that the um, of those jets, when I got to the front line and you sort of go through your, uh, in your mind's eye, who would you be scared of fighting? I don't think we were scared of fighting most of those platforms or the, the um, okay. Russian platforms. I. I and I, the, the Tornado F3, I've got to say this, haven't I, because I'm a Sea Harrier driver, I don't think that was a great air-to-air -air platform myself. It had a lot, uh, it had more weapons than us, could go faster, could go further. 
we can get into the twin seat versus single seat debate, which yeah. will raise till <laughs> rage till long after I'm dead. But I, I, that that wasn't anywhere near the top of the pile. I'd say the French jets were very good as well. Oh, the, yeah. the Mirage, Mirages, yeah. the 2000 series, particularly with the RDY mm -hmm. radar, that they were they were fruity. Mm -hmm. So um, so so in in close we would always struggle, and and occasionally you could use VIF to give you that one party trick that may work or may yeah. not. But I, I think a lot is made of the within visual range fight that you have to get through the beyond visual range fight to yes. uh, to get to. And I think that probably a good way of looking at the FA2 with AMRAM is uh, I've got a long punch. Mm -hmm. If you can get under it, you're going to make my day very, very hard. But you've got four punches yeah. to get under, so you you might struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And did you ever fly any large exercises with this R? Uh, yeah, so so in the UK we were. I, I don't know how long they've been going on, but the um, TLT tactical leadership training and the combined uh, QI course training. That, to be honest, they both exercises identical. Mm -hmm. um, they were just one was particularly aimed at the instructor cadre yeah. coming through to be the mission leaders, etc. So they would happen out of lossy mouth. Um, primarily, I know they, they and Kinloss later. The Kinloss because there was a spare building, I think. Uh, Lossy, we used to have to do it in tents and porter cabins, but that would be a, a significant um, exercise. I remember sweeping for Sooty once, actually, oh, when, right. uh, <laughs> when when Sooty was on the uh, uh, leading a Jaguar formation or in a Jaguar formation. Um, so they were really good fun, and uh, also took the Sea Harrier to Red Flag. Although wow. uh, I will admit we were flying Red Air, so we weren't part of the big blue gorilla. We were uh, part of the um, com guys. combined F sixteen and FA two caps, trying to give them a hard time. And you also flew the GR seven, GR nine. Can you tell us about this and what was it like to transition to this aircraft? Um, I would say once you got your head around the fact that you were no longer going to be multi-role bars towards air defence and that you were no longer going to live in the southwest of England, you were going to live in the Midlands, <laughs> it was actually quite straightforward. I think there are, let, let's be honest, there are always going to be clashes of personality, culture and interest when you're trying to amalgamate two forces. So bear in mind, we went from Joint Force Harrier that was supposed to be us air defenders sweeping for them mud movers. Mm -hmm. That was a fabulous idea. Yeah. I, I mean, what, what's not to like about that? Two, not just one unruly mob traveling the world on an aircraft carrier, um, having a hoot and a roar, two of you. That would have been absolutely brilliant, wouldn't it? But you, you go to a joint force and you've got to accept the fact that people's careers are going to be affected. People's yeah. lives are going to be affected. You know what, if, if a medium seniority Royal Air Force pilot is now looking at not getting a flight commander's tour because there's a Royal Navy guy who needs it. So there will be an element of um, turbulence. So, mm. so there were those things to get through. But to be honest, I, I treated 20 Squadron as uh, a learning opportunity and I, I worked, worked hard. And so I, I never had a snag. I was treated very, very well. And hopefully being an air warfare instructor as well from the Sea Harrier helped because when you got to like the combat phase, you could yeah. say, okay, uh, okay, guys. <laughs> Loving your work, but there's a, there's, there's, a, there's a few tweaks we can make here. But when you're in the air to mud environment, uh, I'm all ears. I'll learn your way. Uh, if there's anything air to surface I can bring from the Sea Harrier, I'll, I'll bring it up. But by and large, I'll bring your way. But the jet was fabulous. And they had done, uh, they, uh, McDonnell BA Systems, that team, had done a brilliant job of taking... A Harrier One, which let's be honest, was essentially a, 
and I'm being cruel now, a, a science project that looked good at air shows, but it was never designed to be operationalised, yeah. was it? The, the, the Harrier yeah. 1, you, you went from P1127 to the Kestrel to the, to the Harrier 1, and you always got the impression that it was just a staggering achievement, but at no point had anyone said, hey, we're going to go operational now. Yeah. Uh, we, we, there are things that we need to square away with the design and the maintenance of the design that we ought to do before it goes to the front line. And before you know it, it's 1978, the Sea Harrier's flying and we're off to war. Whereas the, the Harrier 2, bigger wing, which made essentially all the landings yeah. really easy. Um, uh, we had the bigger engine coming in. You, you had systems that... We, we had a moving map, for example, not in the, in the Sea Harrier. We had a black display yeah. with nine waypoints on it, one of which could be an offset and one of which was the ship or where you started. Yeah. So you're, you're down to seven straight away and one dotted line. Yeah. Um, so uh, the integration of things like the forward-looking infrared made certain things uh, easier. And, and then there were other differences in the aeroplane where you might think that they make them easier, might find them slightly tiresome. For example, it was a very stable aeroplane in the hover, which made it, I guess, easier to learn to hover in. For someone like myself coming from the Harrier 1, I found it quite cumbersome. Yeah. And, it, and it was something that I really had to get used to bullying the aeroplane a little bit more mm -hmm. than I was used to. So, uh, but, but overall, it was, a, it, it was a straightforward transition to, to the Harrier, to a more future-proof airframe, if you like. Okay. Yeah. And what was it like um, operating and living off a carrier? <laughs> the, the best way of describing a carrier, I think, is that everything becomes harder. Where if you, the chances of you getting a good night's sleep on a carrier are not great. It's just something you have to do. Uh, the officer's accommodation, which is fabulous, don't, you know, the, the, your standard of living, short of the fact that you're constrained to a, yeah. a box, is actually very high. You get looked after very well, but your beds are either right below the Harriers doing their midnight ground runs or right above the steering gear. And so that meant that you would get fatigued. Uh, there's no, I don't think anyway, there's a airfield in the world where you have to clamber through hatches to go and get your helmets, to go and get your uh, immersion suit. And actually, I, I would say that the organisation of the aircraft carrier on my first tour was appalling. It was really, really, really bad. Oh, wow. so, so, so for example, um, wouldn't it be nice to go to one room, understand what your mission was, go to another to plan it, go to another to brief it, your immersion suit would be in the next room, then you'd get your helmet and you'd walk out to find the jets. That is how I assume, and I helped a little bit, so I hope it is, how things work on the new aircraft carriers. Mm -hmm. There's absolutely none of it on the, uh, on, the initial, uh, on the CVS when I first got to the front line. Um, the briefing rooms were genuinely like very small cinemas, so they were great for giving a brief, but horrible for planning in then you would have to run off to find your uh, helmet your immersion suit would be hanging up along with all the anti-submarine warfare guys in a room about this size for the entire air group and there were other really weird things for me anyway in that you would wake up in the morning you would know what mission you were going to go and do so you'd go and find the the met officer so you'd uh, run upstairs find out what the what the weather was going to be like then you'd uh, run to the upper air ops, find out where the ship was going to be, or if there was no one there, you'd have to go up to the bridge, etc., etc. And then you'd plan this mission, because with two hours to run to the mission, you had to brief. But the brief was almost entirely to give the ship senior officers a bit of essay as to what you were doing. So it was it was all backwards. Right. And and actually, it took until my 
Um, so I went, uh, did my first tour on 800 Squadron, then I did AY uh, course and stayed on 899 and back to 801 as the AY. And when I was on 801 as the AY, bearing in mind that's the last Sea Harrier tour ever yeah. because we went out of service, mm -hmm. that was when we got the mission cycle fixed, which was we want a data dump at four hours to run. We'll brief you at two hours to run, but I'm not going to waste a single second of my briefing time to do it. Sir, if you want to come and listen in, that's fine. But, but if this is about maritime strike, it's about maritime strike. So, so things like that were, and I don't know how that had developed. I don't know whether or not over the years it's just something that the Royal Navy had done. I mean, you, you read about uh, in the Falklands about yeah, the, the yeah. ship's captain choosing the fusing for the weapons. You go, really? <laughs> should, should, should that not be the air warfare instructor's job, perhaps? Yeah. It, it was, um, but, but we got it changed, you know, and that took buy-in from the senior officers who were, we were actually saying, so you're, you're actually getting in our way. Mm -hmm. And so I think it was actually a really brave thing of them to say, you're right, we've, we've got ourselves to a point where we're not helping. How, yeah. how can we change? And, and for, a, for a commander or a captain to listen to a lieutenant... Is, is actually quite a big thing. So, yeah. so hats off to, to the senior leaders for, for doing so, actually. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you probably have many, but maybe can you share like one or two memorable stories that stick out of your mind from flying the Harrier? The, the ones that stick out in my mind are invariably the ones that where something goes disastrously wrong. <laughs> right. so, so, for example, I remember um, being in, in the Sea Harrier when the ship just simply wasn't where it said it was going to be, and we, we set off to... Um, it was in the Mediterranean, very, uh, what I would call a gloopy day, dusty, really low visibility. And we were practicing emission control. So we weren't allowed to emit on any either radio or radar within 50 miles of the, the ship, which on those days, you know, the ship's team need to be on their game and yeah. be exactly where they've said they were and they, and they weren't. And, uh, <laughs> you know, that's, that's an absolute <laughs> heart stopper, just genuinely... Uh, flying around in the med, thinking uh, we didn't have an, we didn't have much fuel. We had enough to find the sh get back to the ship, fly one circuit, land. The fact that the ship is not there has has raised the ante somewhat. And uh, and we, we we luckily this was purely by chance as we turned to try and set up on a merchant vessel that we'd seen coming. Okay. We there was a there was a dirty great tanker or something that right. we'd seen at like twenty miles. And I said uh, to the the formation leader. It's our only hope. Let's go and land on that. And as we split up to get spacing to land on that ship, number three saw the aircraft carrier purely by chance, wow. and, and that that uh, saved our bacon. So, so that <laughs> those those sorts of things were um, few, few and far between. But they 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 did used to to focus the mind absolutely. And there are other times you know when. Um, you know, when, when the jet, when the deck was absolutely dancing, and you just yeah. need to nail your scan on your your instruments, those those ones stick in the mind as well. Um, where where there's people trying to help, so for example, the landing signals officer saying, "Just settle down." And you go, I'm trying, 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 trying my hardest. Yeah. This is this is. I'm not deliberately trying to follow the deck, but there's something. Um, there's something about a moving deck that seems to have a link through witchcraft to your hands, and it just makes them them follow them. Right. So that those, those those were always sort of quite high octane, if you like. Uh, I'll share with, uh, this with our viewers, but there was a, a video you put up, and the, the bloke ran out in front of. Uh, mm. That looked scary. Like what what happened there? Well, the um, 
the genesis of this is an incredibly bad design on the on the uh, invincible class carriers whereby the ring bolts the the, the they're like movable they look like horseshoes on the deck and yeah. they flick up so that you can tie an aircraft to the deck because that's that's one of the, the differences right yeah. it, 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 you have to be chained down otherwise aircraft start falling off the airfield which is not a thing that a land-based Air Force has to worry about. Yeah. Um, but they were positioned such that they flipped up in the jet blast, not down. So what would ordinarily happen is as the uh, as the jets left the aircraft carrier, the E-flux would flick the horseshoes up. Now, personally, I don't believe that was unsafe at all because a, a Sea Harrier running them over in the opposite direction is just going to push them flat. Yeah. However, for most launches, we tried to make sure they were all flat again, which meant that the deck crew would run around and just stamp on them essentially in the couple of seconds that were available as the next jet was lined up. In this case it was an operational launch where there, there is no couple of seconds and there was a new guy on the on the deck and he had seen other people run in front of other aeroplanes to kick these things flat and he simply hadn't realized that the next jet was going to go 10 seconds after his leader slammed. Now I, and I think, I'm, I might be wrong, I, I think I was in the lead aeroplane for that because I hadn't heard anything about it until we got down when someone says you want you want to watch number two's um, yeah. head-up display. And, and as you can see, it's very close to collecting either an outrigger or a tank in the head. And yeah. that, that's, um, you, you just got to be on, on your game really. There's uh, the, a, a flight deck is a, it's like a well-oiled ballet, you yeah. know, everyone has to know their part and yeah. know, know where those corners are. And you need supervisors with their heads all over the place to, to rein things like that in. I mean, I don't think anyone was in danger of going and grabbing him by the collar because that, that, that was a mistake he sort of learnt for himself. But yeah, yeah that, that, was a, that was a close one. Um, how many hours did you get on the Sea Harrier and, and the GR7 and GR9? Uh, I wish I knew the answer to this question. Um, I, I got my 1,000-hour badge on the course at 20 Squadron. We were, uh, so... Um, just before we deployed to Cyprus to do an air-to-surface phase, so so that's that's when I racked up a thousand hours Sea Harrier. I I was very very close. I remember having this conversation with one of the other guys on 801. So, you know, I had something like 198 deck landings mm -hmm. and 994 hours or something like that when the uh, when the, the Sea Harrier folded. So and and this fellow was being very nice. So yeah, but mate, it. it, it in reality, you have 200 deck landings and a thousand hours again. No, I really don't. I really don't. I'm I'm that short, and I don't. It's uh, so, um, and then whatever a couple of years of flying the. Uh, so we we obviously went out of service in 2010. I I was the EXO of the Naval Strike Wing in the summer of 2010, having started flying the aeroplane mid 2007. So so three-ish years, whatever whatever that um, translates to, I guess. 150 hours a year, so maybe 500 plus a bit because when we were on ops, we flew a lot. You know, 15 hours a month went up to 30 or 40 hours a month when we were in Kandahar. So.